Now, our next speaker is Kieran Palmer. Kieran began his work at the Ted Noss Foundation in 2005 as an alcohol and other drugs worker and has held numerous positions within the foundation, including manager of the Palm Residential Treatment Service and his current role is clinical services manager for all NOFS programs nationwide. Uh, Kieran is a registered psychologist and has undertaken advanced diploma management and his areas of expertise lie in youth mental health, alcohol and other drugs and trauma development and treatment. Kieran maintains a high level of clinical knowledge and professional development and he these insights to assist in staff training and development throughout the organisation and the wider sector. And Karen's presentation, as you can see today, is ICE and Adolescence Trends and Treatment. So welcome, Karen. Thank you. Is that working now? There we go. All right. G'day, everyone. My name is Karen, and I'm here uh, uh, from the Tednos Foundation. So I'm the head psychologist and clinical services manager, and I'm here to talk about ICE and teenagers, but before I start, I'd just like to take a really quick segue, if I could, and, uh, and show you some photos. This first photo is of a little boy, a little baby boy, born at 28 weeks gestation, weighing in at a very slight 850 grams, and he was born three months premature due to complications in utero. This next picture is a little girl, also born at 28 weeks gestation, weighing in at a touch over 1,000 grams. She's the twin sister of the first boy. And she was born three months premature due to the complications that her brother suffered in utero. Now, before I go on, no, these complications weren't caused by methamphetamine use, or indeed, do these photos have anything at all to do with ice at all? These are photos of my son and daughter. I would say that I've always had a general appreciation for the work that nurses do. If I'm honest, I'd say I had a pretty limited understanding of the work that midwives did. I knew it had something to do with supporting and working with pregnant women, but that's about as far as my understanding went. Um, but I would like to say that from my experience, my views and my attitudes towards the nursing profession, and in my view now as a very noble profession, has been forever changed. and. Um, and this for me goes for any um, branch of the nursing profession, be it neonatal medicine or, or drug and alcohol or mental health. And when I got the invitation to come and speak here today, the first thing I thought was, when am I going to get a better opportunity, probably ever, um, to have an audience with a whole group of people whom I have such a deep admiration and respect for? The first 93 days of, uh, of our twins' lives were spent in the newborn intensive care unit up at the Royal um, Hospital for Women in Ramwick. They were nothing short of, of terrifying for us. Um, they were on a variety of life support interventions. But what my wife and I received during those 93 days was far more than just healthcare from the nursing staff. We were treated with respect, we were treated with dignity, with endless amounts of compassion, and with an incredible level of skill and expertise. But more so than this, we were given our family, we were given the opportunity um, to eventually take our little family home. Um, and what I wanted to do today was just to take this opportunity that I, I might not get again, um, 
to just stop and, and just to, to stop everything and just say thank you. Oh, that's okay. That's fine. Um, to say thank you for the work that you do. Um, I can never say again that nursing is, you know, it's a, I'm sure it's a tough job and it's very demanding. Um, I, I really wanted to take this opportunity to thank you all for, uh, for the work that you do and to please know that on those, those tough days where the hours are very long and the demands are very high, that there is at least one eternal grateful dad out there um, who will never ever take for granted what you all do each and every day. Um, for your jobs, and I'm I'm thrilled to report that uh, that our twins, whom admittedly we were told very early on that we may very well have to consider losing one in order to save the other one, uh, both got to celebrate Father's Day last weekend with their dad. So. A most sincere thank you. All right, let's talk about ice. We've heard some fantastic speakers so far. Some of what I'm going to talk about uh, will be replicated a little bit in the slides, so I will um, skim over, uh, I think, some of the stuff that we've already been through. I guess what I wanted to come here and talk about today was my experiences through, through the work that I'm doing with the Tednos Foundation. Um, and particularly how ICE is affecting um, teenagers, how it does affect teenagers, and some of the work that we're doing and some of the success that we're having um, working with these, with these clients. We run a range of programs and a range of initiatives um, throughout the eastern side of Australia now. We have programs throughout uh, Greater Sydney, also the ACT, and now in the southeast uh, corner of Queensland. And we run initiatives from mentoring programs, uh, counselling services, right through to our Palm um, residential rehab programs. So really quickly, um, we've been through a lot of this. Uh, amphetamine type stimulants, or which methamphetamine is a part of. Uh, it's a general classification of drugs which uh, describe the effects of the central nervous system. A lot of, uh, a lot of my clients tend to um, to misinterpret that as it's, it's called a stimulant because it, it stimulates you and it's called a depressant because it makes you depressed. It's, it actually refers to the function on the central nervous system. So things like heart rate, respiratory rate, um, blood pressure, body temperature, that sort of thing. As we've heard, the effects have actually been sought after in, in pharmaceutical applications for, for a long, long time now. Probably the most common one now is the drying out of the nasal passages um, in uh, cold and flu medication, pseudoephedrine. But as a, uh, as a recreational drug, they also have the ability to affect mood, behaviour um, and physical functioning. The different forms that we've had a look at, um, and it's interesting to see some of the percentages. Admittedly, in all the work and all the research that I've done, the percentages do vary quite greatly. They do tend to clump them into ranges, but um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of literature that you see will sort of quote different ones. But essentially, um, the three most common forms, we have a powder version, which was uh, referred to as the old speed. Um, the lowest kind of purity estimates between 6 to 10 or 12%, usually encephalated or snorted, gets absorbed into the bloodstream through mucous membranes in the nose. Um, snorting speed, probably the best way to get rid of a runny nose when you've got a cold. Um, most speed in Australia currently is thought to be uh, methamphetamine powder. And interestingly as well, um, the MDMA, or MDMA, which is 
being sold in, uh, in ecstasy pills, a lot of current testing is beginning to find that there's actually very little um, pure MDMA, if any, in those pills, that what they are finding is it's generally a mixture of methamphetamine and ketamine. Um, and a lot of the conversations that I'll have with, uh, with clients will be around um, gently challenging the notion that, yes, I understand that your deal is the best and he always gets the purest stuff and don't worry, I know a guy and it's, you know, he, he gets pure MDMA, don't worry, but um, generally most of it is, is actually found to be methamphetamine based. The more and more we cook it up and synthesize it, it takes on a waxy compound, which is base, um, a lot more pure, a lot stronger than, uh, than powder speed. 30 to 40 percent usually dissolved in water or injected because of the consistency makes it very hard to snort or uh, or smoke cook it up more and more and more and this is where we get what we're talking about today which is ice or crystalline methylamphetamine extremely high purity um, some estimates between 90 to 95 percent pure some even go as high as 99 percent pure it's a crystallized form, the, mo the strongest, the most potent. It's usually either inhaled through vapor. Um, as a matter of definition, it's technically not smoking because it's, it's not actually combusted. It's not creating a smoke. It's the vapor that gets, um, the vapor that comes off it or um, it's injected. Can be mixed into a drink, can be eaten, can be sprinkled on a, uh, on a, a cannabis cone or or in a joint and smoke that way, but typically the two most common methods being inhaled and injected, and I would certainly um, mirror the thoughts that, uh, that I think there is a bit of a, uh, a positive stigma around smoking ice, that it's, it must be a lot safer um, than injecting, and whilst uh, injecting practice, take the drug away from it, injecting practices certainly have their, um, their risks. Uh, there's, there's certainly huge damage to be done um, to the lungs, to the, to the throat, when it comes to, uh, to ice. And one of, the, one of the most important harm reduction strategies that I talk to all my clients about who are smoking ice is don't hold it in. There's, there's still this belief that, say, similar to cannabis, the goal is to draw it down as deep as possible, hold it in for as long as possible before exhaling it, because surely that means you're absorbing more and you're gonna get a bigger high. Because of the nature of the vapor, typically it all gets absorbed by the time it gets down there anyway. It happens incredibly quickly. Um, basically all you're doing is you're not giving yourself any bigger high at all. You're just causing huge damage, particularly to the base of the lungs. Okay, so the prevalence, we've heard a little bit about this um, early on and Judith uh, spoke about this in the introduction. Um, the last... Uh, I'll say global because it's Australia based, but the last, the last large scale um, piece of evidence that we have in terms of national drug use is the 2013 National Drug Strategy Household Survey, uh, which did find that there was no significant rise in the amount of methamphetamine use in the last 10 years. Uh, it's about 2% of population had, had used. However, the important things to note is that there was a significant decrease. Um, so use of powder, halved, nearly halved, 51 to 29%. The use of the crystal form more than doubled from 22 to 50%. So what this is saying is that drug users themselves are tending towards a more pure, more potent form of the drug. Not only in terms of its chemical properties, but in terms of behavior, um, behavior study, crystal methamphetamine, far, far higher risk of dependent kind of use. And we'll have a look at the, the different kinds of um, the different kinds of usage uh, that people can do. But um, 
the use of, of crystal methamphetamine, either smoking or injecting, much, much higher rates of, um, of developing dependence. So users are using a stronger version and a, a more riskier version of the substance. This graph is from our residential program. So this is what we're actually seeing. So we go from the household survey, which is very broad, Australia-wide, has some limitations, tend to miss um, some of the more complex, I guess, who, who either don't have a household to take the survey from or aren't being represented because they're not at home for the time. They might not have been home for a long time. They might be couch surfing. Um, so this data is taken from our residential program. So we have two uh, residential drug and alcohol treatment programs, one just up the road here in Ramwick and one in the ACT in a suburb called Watson. It's pretty much the first suburb you drive through uh, as you drive through from Sydney. Um, we're a youth-based organisation. So essentially these are, are youth rehabs, these programs. They're based around a three-month model, based around therapeutic community kind of principles, but we consider ourselves a, a modified um, TC. There's a strong counselling component, strong living skills component, and a really, really strong component on um, re-engagement with family, with school, um, getting people into the workforce. We take young people 13 to 18, um, boys and girls, one of the biggest messages I can get out today is if you are working with teenagers who you think um, would benefit from potentially a residential stint, please give us a call, go on our website. Um, we're, we're incredibly inclusive. We'll, we'll take young people on meds with mental health difficulties, any kind of substance, um, any kind of gender, race, it really doesn't matter. Um, all we need to do is ensure that they're gonna be safe in the program. Um, and that everyone else is going to be safe, but, but generally we'll, um, we'll give everyone a go as long as we can, um, as long as we can develop a, an exit plan that we can be confident with. Um, one of the difficulties comes that if we take, say, rural young people with no solid exit plan, um, if they self-discharge, all of a sudden they're, you know, they're five minutes away from King's Cross on a Saturday night, which is not ideal, if, especially if they've never been to Sydney before. But, sorry. Back to the graph. What this is, is a representation of the primary drugs of concern that people present to our residential units with. So this isn't our counselling service, this is the residential, this is the, the pointy end. The blue line there indicates cannabis, the red line indicates alcohol, and that yellow line there indicates amphetamine type stimulants. Um, we haven't actually differentiated methamphetamine versus, but this is the, the ATS family. All those other messy lines at the bottom is everything else. Um, ecstasy, cocaine, tranquilizers, which include um, benzos, opioids, hallucinogens. This data is from 2009. We're currently working with the University of New South Wales to do some longer term stuff, which is a pretty big project. But this is data from 2009. And what we are seeing here is, is something that's, that's very, very clear. Number one, there's only one coloured line there that's actually increasing. Um, everything else is either stable or even decreasing. And the last, um, and unfortunately this doesn't represent the data from 2014, 2015, um, but I can tell you the lines are going in a very kind of similar direction. They've sort of plateaued a little bit, um, but the, the end result is still the same. That For the first time in over a decade, amphetamine-type stimulants is our number one drug of presentation, beating out cannabis to the top spot for the first time in over a decade. Cannabis was always our biggest, biggest drug, as you can see there. Um, we're now in our Sydney units, it's about 55% of our residents are in there because of a primary concern of methamphetamine. In Canberra, it's about 51% 
Um, so both units, ice is, is our number one drug. So what this is telling us is that whilst the household survey is, is giving us reliable data that overall um, ice rates, or sorry, methamphetamine rates haven't increased. One, ice rates certainly have, and powder rates have decreased. But what this is telling us is that the youth population is tending towards this kind of drug. And it, it provides a, a lot of, um, of risk and difficulties, which, which we're starting to see. Really quickly, um, the patterns of use that we see uh, ranging from everything from experimental use, which is very short-lived. It's usually associated, particularly in the, those adolescent years, with a wider range of, uh, of experimentation patterns. Um, and the person will often experiment for a little while and not return to drugs. We actually do see this quite a bit, kids coming in with um, primary dependence on cannabis who might have tried ice once or twice and it just scared the hell out of them and they never went back to it. Um, recreational use, so this is usually tied in with some kind of leisure um, use socially. There's usually great control exercised over the drug in the off period, so um, recreational users might use at raves or at parties, but they can still control their use during the week or even for weeks at a time. Uh, circumstantial use, which we have heard a little bit about today, used for very specific purposes, sporting, night shift work, long haul truck driving is a very big one. Um, cognitive, a study was recently done in Queensland looking at postgraduate um, students and actually really surprisingly high rates of methamphetamine used um, to, to sort of pull those all-nighters. Um, because of its ability to keep people awake and also to concentrate for long periods of time, I remember being at uni and I, I certainly pulled a couple of all-nighters without the use of ice. But by four in the morning, my concentration was in about five-minute blocks and that was about it. Um, so what's being reported is that you know, people can still stay up all night but can actually concentrate for long enough to get some decent work done. Um, and also circumstantial use for behavioural, sexual performance, um, social confidence. Binging patterns, usually prolonged, very intense, anywhere between one to five days. We, uh, because I'm working with teenagers, I do get the, uh, you know, my longest binge ever was a month. I didn't go to bed for 30 days. Generally, five days is probably the max before very important body systems really start to shut down. Um, and the user typically remains awake for these periods. And then regular use. So using two to three times a week, very, very highly associated with dependence, and there's likely to develop those tolerance and withdrawal symptoms. We've heard a bit about the pharmacology. Um, for me, this is, oh, I get really excited by this stuff, particularly the withdrawal stuff, which, which I do want to focus a little bit on today. Um, three main neurotransmitters which amphetamines target. Dopamine is the, the primary one and to a bit of a lesser extent serotonin and noradrenaline. So really, really quickly what, what these actually do, what their function is in, in normal human life. Um, dopamine is our reward. It's our reward and pleasure thing. It's what, it's what gets released when something nice happens, when we see a loved one, when we eat a really nice meal, chocolate, for example, um, releases dopamine into the synapse. It also creates that, that feedback loop in terms of reward and pleasure. We do something, it feels good, we get this drive to do it again, and that's, that's dopamine working. Some of its other functions, though, attention, working memory, so that, that sort of on-the-spot problem-solving stuff, um, motivational behaviour, that motivation to get up on a cold, rainy winter Monday morning and go to work um, is, is usually kind of dopamine, which finally gets us to stop hitting snooze seven times and, and put that foot out of bed. 
Um, it also monitors executive function, that kind of higher order front, front brain stuff, and psychomotor control as well. And as we've said, it gets released into the synapse during pleasurable activities, food, sex, seeing loved ones, etc. So what happens when we take ice is that amphetamines actually mimic the dopamine. So they get released into the, uh, into the central nervous system or through the central nervous system into the synapse. They mimic dopamine and they absolutely flood the brain cell. So the, uh, the cell releases massive amounts of dopamine into the synapse. They float around and then it, it blocks the reuptake. So they just continually float around for a long time, four, six, eight, sometimes 12 hours. They've tried to start to measure this. It's, I haven't been able to find any really robust data yet to suggest definitively what the numbers are, but some of the estimates are that um, dopamine measures in, in the synapse during regular kind of pleasurable activities, anywhere around 200 to 250 dopamine measures. So this is, you know, we're talking seeing a loved one for the first time in a long time, um, sex, good sex, um, is about that. Some of the estimates are that one hit of methamphetamine may release up to 1,200, some even up to 12,000. So the old idea that when methamphetamine users would get interviewed and they would say, you know, well, what's, what's it like? And they'd say, well, it's, it's 100 times better than sex. The old thought was maybe you're just not doing sex right, but according to the neurobiology, what, it, what this would suggest is it's, it is a type of pleasure and a type of happiness that is just unparalleled with anything else in life. And, you know, the, I suppose the somewhat depressing reality is that if we choose not to take ice, we may never actually feel what these people feel to that kind of level. So incredibly, it's a big force that that we're sort of going up against. Um, quickly moving on from dopamine, serotonin, what it does is it regulates, oh, what have I done? There we go. Uh, some of those more complex behaviors. So these are, are the more, those more complex kind of functions. Mood, um, also appetite, sleep regulation, cognition or thinking, um, perception, motor activity, temperature regulation, pain control, sexual behavior and arousal and hormone secretion. Also smooth muscle, muscle function, blood pressure regulation, um, and blood platelets in the GI system. <coughs> Noradrenaline, this is our sympathetic nervous system. So this includes our cardiovascular function, or the, the way our, our heart system kind of regulates itself. Um, arousal, concentration, attention, memory, and learning. So there's, there's a pretty wide reaching um, effects that a drug like this has. We've been through some of those positive effects and, and one of the, uh, certainly one of the criticisms of, um, of the shock campaigns, particularly in the, the cohort that I'm working with, so particularly with teenagers, is that teenagers have a pretty acute radar as to when they're only getting half the story. And it's, uh, I, I certainly would agree with some of the, some of the thoughts on the, um, the Gruen program that there's really nothing positive in those ads at all. One, there's no where to from here. There's absolutely no treatment outcomes or anything. My view would certainly increase that, that stigma and make it more difficult um, for people to, to actually bravely you know, access treatment. Um, but also there's absolutely no positive as well. So for young people who are experimenting with this drug, they take it once, they realize it's the most 
insanely happy they've ever felt and they feel like Superman and on top of the world, um, which, which doesn't actually now, it's you know, where the balance is in terms of, well, we can't just show how awesome ice is, but certainly I think what happens is that the teenagers in particular, they just switch off. The message doesn't get through at all because they, they know they're only getting half the story. So there are those positive effects. We've been, we've been through those in previous presentations today. A um, little bit of interesting stuff around methamphetamine and aggression. Most of this data is actually taken from um, drug users themselves and their um, views on methamphetamine and aggression. Certainly wide, wide coverage that um, anyone out there that ever takes ice is going to want to throw a chair at the, uh, at the orderly and headbutt their mum for not making them a sandwich or whatever it was. Um, what users report is that methamphetamine users certainly get, can get revved up. Um, and if we think of those presentations that we've seen of people just being a little bit too intense, the eye contact's a bit intense, there's a bit too much staring, talking pretty loud, talking fast, um, talking obsessively, getting really, really stuck um, on a point or losing awareness of, of time. Um, you know, just incessantly going over and over and over in ways that non-drug using people or inexperienced people um, could misunderstand and may, may misinterpret as actually aggression. In reality, not every person who ever takes ice and gets a bit revved up ends up in emergency or in front of nurses or in front of police or anything like that, most times this behaviour is typically managed really, really well in peer circles. Mates actually pulling each other up, you know, come on, come for a walk, calm down, you're getting a bit, getting a bit revved up. Where it does become problematic is if people are using alone or if people are using in public. So if people decide to use, go to a club, come out, um, maybe come out for a cigarette or something like that and it's, it coincides with the time where restaurants are closing. So you've got a lot of um, members of the public who are walking back to their cars and walking around and then you've got someone who's, who's affected in this kind of way. Latest reports say that in incidents of amphetamine type similar related violence have actually decreased and that was as a result of increased training for ED staff in terms of just even education on, on methamphetamine and, um, and its effects and, and ways to, uh, to work with that. So certainly um, I would, I would be all in favour of, of increasing the resources for, um, for emergency staff and nurses to, to get as much um, priority and as much training as possible for, for this sort of thing. Um, and a lot of users actually report that true aggression and violence, because we, you know, I can't stand here and say that nobody ever gets, gets aggro and gets, gets violent on methamphetamines, but what users report is that um, those individuals that do would probably be the same individuals that would get aggro and violent with large amounts of alcohol. So would have a skin full of alcohol and go out and start fights. Okay, methamphetamine and psychosis. So there is a pretty strong link between the two. Um, basically psychosis is a loss of connection with reality, including thought, emotion and behavior. Uh, it's actually thought to be caused by excess dopamine, which would make sense for ICE users because it's way too much of it floating around. Um, so excess dopamine communicating messages to all the senses, um, which actually leads to distortions of those senses. So some of the key features of a psychosis or somebody in a psychosis can be marked by hallucinations. So that's experiencing actually sensations which have no basis in reality. Can affect all five senses. Um, can be seeing things, hearing voices, the bugs under the skin. Um, 
Olfactory hallucinations, another really common one, um, smoke. I've had a couple of clients that were hallucinating that everywhere they went, they would smell smoke. And also taste, uh, metallic taste, or even the taste of blood is a common one. Delusions, which are fixed beliefs that don't shift despite evidence to the contrary. So for example, being followed, being spied, being bugged. Um, now this doesn't include any cultural or religious specific beliefs unless the other members of that particular culture, those beliefs aren't upheld by as well. And also thought disorders. So thinking becomes really confused, speeding up, slowing down, jumping all over the place um, can be another, another feature of psychosis. Can be marked by some pretty bizarre looking behaviors, which for, for trained people um, can look bizarre enough for members of the public on a Saturday night coming out of a restaurant can look very terrifying. Um, so some of the key ones, responding to delusions, which is picking under the skin to try and get the alien parasite out, um, responding to voices, telling voices or, or visualizations to go away or leave me alone. Um, these behaviors make perfect sense for the individual at the time. And this is what we would, we would class as a psychosis that in the context of, of their reality make perfect sense. However, in the context of the, the wider reality don't make sense at all. Also negative symptoms to be mindful of. So really blunted affect and a real loss, um, a real loss of drive for those normal kind of self-care behaviors. Um, so looking after themselves, showering, hygiene, um, dental hygiene and, and that sort of thing, which is a, a big contributing factor to, um, to meth mouth is, uh, is the fact that, you know, people stop brushing their teeth as well. Um, important to know that this can actually occur at any, do at any dose. Um, it, uh, substance like methamphetamines, rather than being considered dosage or overdosage levels, tends to be considered more as toxicity levels. And even at really, really small doses, this can trigger um, a psychotic episode. And individuals can actually develop what's called a reverse tolerance. So the, uh, the receptors for those um, psychotic episodes become primed and they're far, far more at risk of having a, a secondary uh, and so on um, psychotic episode. So withdrawal, really, really uh, important. We've, we've had a bit of a look at this today. Three phases of withdrawal. We have a crash phase, typically one, one to three days, anywhere up to sort of four or five days, up to a week. Um, the intense phase, which is, this is the, uh, the problematic one. Um, so about 10 to 14 weeks, uh, which is interesting for the program I work in, or the, sorry, I, I used to work in, um, Given that it's a three-month program, what we're looking at is someone who's just come out of that intense phase of withdrawal by the time they finish. There's still, still a long road to go, but so far we haven't figured out any kind of way of keeping teenagers in treatment for any longer than three months. Um, and then we have a long-term withdrawal and recovery phase, which some data suggests can even go up to 18, uh, 18 months. Probably not so much in the cohort that I'm working with because typically people have been full-time meth users for maybe a year. Um, maybe two years at the most because I'm working with teenagers. For people working with adults, long-term methamphetamine users, it can take a long time uh, for the brain to bounce back. So in that crash phase, um, it's, it's usually a recovery from exhaustion. It's a lack of sleep, a lack of food. The muscles have been working for three to five days nonstop. I know that at the end of a really hectic day, just plonking down on the couch feels really good. If I didn't do that for five days straight, I would be absolutely exhausted. Um, can be marked by insomnia or hypersomnia. Um, so the inability to sleep or the inability to not 
sleep. Uh, intense cravings for sleep and also food. Nightmares can return. Now, this isn't always a bad thing. Uh, what the return of nightmares can actually signal is the return of REM sleep. And we see this quite a bit with uh, long-term cannabis users, that the cannabis sleep tends to be a bit of a fake sleep, that it's a, a very sort of shallow sleep. And um, individuals sort of say, oh, you know, I'm just always too stoned. Or I can't remember my dreams. The reality is they may actually not dream all that much because they don't, they don't really get down into that deep um, REM sleep. So the return of nightmares can actually be reframed in a, in a positive way that this is actually your sleep cycles, you know, getting back to normal. Um, and also, of course, irritability. And I know that a lot of um, detox units are, are looking at extending their periods because, or encouraging users to try and start the crash phase before they come in. Because if we've got a, a detox unit that's five to seven days and they're spending the first three or four asleep, there's really no, no intervention getting done. There's no work getting done. Okay, the intense phase. So bearing in mind that this actually goes for anywhere up to three or four months, what this is marked by is intense cravings. So really, really difficult to assess consequences, forward plan and hope for the future. If we think about what methamphetamine does and what it affects. It affects our motivation, it, it reflects our reward, and also our, our noradrenaline response. So we've got no energy. It's very, very difficult to hope for the future because our ability to see into the future isn't great. Um, the cravings are intense. That ability for me to assess consequence and reward isn't fantastic anyway. So it's really, really hard for me not to go with those cravings and just leave and take off. And, we're, we're getting some, some fantastic results from the programs that we're running, but we are seeing um, high amounts of treatment dropout from methamphetamine users because it's, it's really, really hard to see around the corner um, because I just feel so crap at the moment. Day 10 to 14, peak for suicide. We, we heard mentioned suicide Tuesday, um, but that real dip in the dopamine function where life becomes very, very bleak and the depression that people feel is very, very real, uh, as well as the anxiety. Um, one thing I, I tell my clients is try and do this with as much empathy as possible, that the depression is, is incredibly real, but don't take it too seriously. It's not an accurate reflection of your, your brain profile as a whole. Um, this is the fact that you know, you, you've had a drug come in and delivered dump trucks of the happy chemical. You've taken the dump trucks away. The factory's rusty, and it, it's going to take time to kind of reboot itself. Um, you, will, you will get better from this stuff. Psychotic symptoms can re-emerge in this phase. Real difficulty remembering and planning. Um, one thing that, that I've found, and I really encourage clients to do this, is to, if you're not a planner, if you're not a diary person, start to do it. Use the calendar on your iPhone, get a diary or something like that because forgetfulness really, really increases. Um, and for my clients, I mean, if, if a client forgets to turn up to a, a session with me, okay, fine, I can reschedule, that's no worries. If they forget to go to court, it's, it's a completely different matter. So um, planning and actually remembering things is a real problem. Total dysphoria with, with daily life, what, what happens with prolonged methamphetamine use is not only are we getting these gigantic surges in dopamine, what that means is that the baseline, the, the threshold for what actually makes me happy is, is slowly going up and up and up. So whereas it used to take this much dopamine to get me happy, it now takes this much. So if I take ice away, nothing in my daily life ever gets up to here anyway. So it's all here. So it's nothing at all 
I, I feel genuinely happy about. And it, it's even more depressing when I see other people happy and laughing and giggling. Why can't I be like, you know, other other kids? So it's a um, it, it's a difficult problem to to overcome. Mood swings, um, psychomotor retardation. So um, people who were formerly really coordinated. Um, getting really clumsy. This becomes a problem for some of uh, some of my clients, particularly um, hotshot footy players. We get a lot of uh, 70% of our clients are boys, and a lot actually excelled um, in football in their earlier years. All of a sudden, they come off ice and they're clumsy. They're missing passes. They're not as quick as they used to be. And again, this can have a be a direct result from uh, from the neurochemical side of things. Chances of relapse incredibly high in this period. So what happens over time is that the receptors basically get damaged, they get burned out, they get exhausted, they get fried. Um, what happens on a physical level actually get really narrowed, so they can't absorb dopamine as well anymore. Um, there's actually less receptors in total and there's less, less dopamine in total for the person to receive anyway. And after repeated use, the brain starts to believe that it's got too much dopamine. Our brains are pretty, pretty smart things, and it starts to think this is, this is too much, and especially when it's having an effect on, on that kind of psychotic process as well. Um, too much dopamine feels great at the time, but our brains know it's not, it's not good in the long run. It's burning things out. So, and as we've said there, the threshold for what constitutes pleasure is now much higher. So what starts to happen is that we're not producing as much dopamine anyway. It's not getting received very well at all. Um, and not only that, we need so much more of it to feel happy. Uh, so that lack of reward or motivation massively increased impulsivity, which is, uh, is a challenge for, for teenagers anyway, let alone the cohort that, that I'm working with who have been through you know, trauma and mental health and family drug use and, and all the rest of it. Um, control of movement, which we've talked about, poor memory, planning and problem solving. This is also due to the all of a sudden the absence of the brain's rocket fuel. Amphetamine, methamphetamine is, it is such a powerful stimulant that it is like rocket fuel. And what we can expect is that when people come off it, they effectively get dumber for a little while before they start to pick up because it actually, it speeds up those, those neural processes so much. <clears throat> Cognitive shifting is also uh, an important one. And I'll, I'll quickly talk at the end about one, one thing that we've done to try, and, um, to try and support with this. Cognitive shifting is basically the ability to shift from one fixed idea to another. Really, really poor in, uh, in people who are coming off methamphetamine. Um, so what we actually see is um, people get stuck. Thought rumination becomes really, really problematic and really, really hard to get out of. So if that thought rumination is happening at 11 o'clock at night and the thought is, I want to go use, I want to go use, I want to go use, I can't assess the consequences. Everything that I've done up until now, I just feel crap all the time. I just can't feel happy anymore. Um, in rehab units, it's difficult because I'm looking around and I'm seeing these alcohol-dependent people and these heroin-dependent people who go through this horrible uh, physical withdrawal, but after a little while, they all start to report that they're feeling better. They're, they're starting to feel more motivated, life's becoming brighter. For me, every day that goes on, I'm just feeling crapper because it's gonna take, you know, potentially 18 months for my dopamine to sort itself out. Um, so that, that ability to shift between a fixed, I wanna go call my dealer and not is really, really difficult. So potentially also leading to those kind of high dropout rates.
Um, really quickly, with serotonin, um, when we're coming off methamphetamine, focus and concentration, the smallest task can feel like a massive chore. Things like chronic fatigue, appetite and sleep problems. Um, the opposite of what ice would give, which is a really low libido, and, and people can actually feel quite um, depressed that, you know, I used to I used to have this kind of sex drive. I used to consider myself, you know, a sexual being and it's just gone. Um, and that's that's a real that's a real problem. Um, Social withdrawal and social isolation, um, and um, Annabelle spoke about this, that isolation, really, really problematic. Nothing worse for, for human being mental health than isolation, worse than trauma, worse than uh, abuse, worse than anything like that. And people do find themselves quite isolated. Not only that, but the, the lack of this neurochemical is, is kind of, it's forcing that as well. Um, and the inability to, to regulate mood and modify aggression, nor adrenaline. We can't concentrate as well. We can't hold our attention. It's hard to focus. Um, Decision-making becomes hard, impaired arousal, um, arousal outside of the normal kind of context, uh, and the depletion in that flight-or-flight response. So for teenagers whose flight-or-flight response isn't... It's, it's getting worked on at that, during that adolescent time. A highly traumatised population, that response is, is very, very skewed as well. Um, a real depletion in that. So during those times where a, TJ, a teenager might feel under threat, most of the brain goes pretty dark, the back of it lights up, fight or flight or freeze, um, those survival things, that's a depletion. So a massive increase in risk-taking behaviour. We, we see so many young people come in um, who just think, my God, what were you thinking in the last few months? And the reality is, uh, they weren't. There, there wasn't too much um, executive thinking actually going on. So, meth specific. Uh, it does need to be treated a little bit differently because withdrawal is a little bit different um, than everything else. After that crash phase, the individual just slowly starts to feel worse. There's still no motivation. I feel miserable. The only way to feel happy is with more ice. I can't assess the consequences or plan ahead of these decisions, so therefore I'm doomed to feel like this way forever. Throw in trauma, and we're, we're seeing a hugely traumatised population, and this may be the only thing that's ever given me any sense of, uh, of happiness, of self-image, of confidence, anything like that um, within myself. It, it allows me to feel like me, possibly for the first time, and I've had clients report that it, I actually felt like me. I had the, the confidence to just not, not care. It was the first time in my life I just didn't feel crap when I thought about myself. Um, you know, how, can I, how can I possibly give that up? So it's, treatment is around timing as well, that uh, today might not be the perfect day to get off ice, that we may actually need to build up some foundations before we knock away, potentially the only thing that's kind of holding this, this coping system together. And again, while studies have shown that this can take a long time, functioning can improve. So how do we do that? Um, as I said, our treatment programs are very much lifestyle-based. Getting into a daily routine, massively important. Diet, uh, protein-rich foods, green vegetables, lots of green vegetables, very important. Um, daily exercise, also very important. Fish oils, uh, we use in all our programs, which which have we found to be really quite effective. And the importance of getting people moving, getting people moving around um, and getting people experiencing things that they've either never experienced before or that ice use has stopped them from experiencing. 
Um, we can probably guess that our clients aren't going to feel great about anything at all. You know, we could take them to Disneyland and put them on roller coasters and it may still just feel mediocre. So just encouraging people to get stuck into things, just do something, get out and move, try new things, um, making sure that they're legal, but you know, do, do new things. I've encouraged clients to find adrenaline stuff to do, just to try and get that, that adrenaline system kind of working. Um, you know, if, if skydiving is something you've always wanted to do, save up your Centrelink payments, go skydiving, like, do it. Um, another thing that I've found really, really helpful, especially for teenagers, is that um, neurobiology information. Uh, my clients absolutely crave it. Reframing it and using metaphors I've found really helpful, so like the factory analogy, brain's this factory that produces natural happy chemicals at a rate of about 250 a day. All of a sudden you're calling the dump trucks, the factory stops working because it doesn't need to, the foreman gets lazy, you decide to call off the trucks and the factory's rusty, there's cobwebs everywhere and it's going to take a while for it to, to boot back up again. Um, but really, really important because um, from what I've found is that the young people that I work with, they, they often don't know what's going on. Like, why do I feel this crap? And the, the conclusion usually is because I'm now, I'm, I'm fried. You know, the, the only way that I can feel good now is, is with more ice. So education around the fact that this is really normal, normalising the depression, um, acknowledging it, but also shifting the focus onto the fact that this hasn't actually changed you as a person forever, hasn't broken you, it's just going to take time to, to get back into it. Um, so a couple of specific things that we've done is we've really, really increased our capacity for motivational interviewing. We always trained in motivational interviewing for our clinical staff, for our counsellors and um, for our clinicians around the place. We've increased this and we've actually started training everyone. So from um, youth work staff, even admin staff in basic motivational interviewing. We have very, very strict protocols on who can talk to who about what because we are working with a very traumatised population. We don't want um, you know, people getting counselled at 11 o'clock at night. Um, you know, when they're at risk of uh, self-harm or absconding or anything else. But what we want to do is we want to, of course, we want to increase the client's capacity for, for self-efficacy and decision-making during that withdrawal phase. But we want everyone to know how to have these skilled, clinically-based conversations which can help redirect um, a young person because we, we know that there are going to be some young people that come to us who want to self-discharge on a Wednesday at lunchtime when their counsellor's there, but we're going to have a lot who want to self-discharge at 9 o'clock on a Friday night when there's no managers and no counsellors actually in the program at that time. So we've increased our capacity in motivational interviewing. Cognitive impairment, um, as I've spoken a little bit about, and that ability to cognitive shift. Worthwhile having a look into this instrument, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment or the MOCA test. It's free to use. Um, you can get it online. I got it presented to me at another conference by a, a senior neuropsychologist from Melbourne. Um, but it's really, really good at picking up on specific cognitive impairments. Fantastic for our programs because we can figure out who of our clients have auditory impairments, who have visuospatial impairments, um, who have processing impairments. So we can tailor our groups and we can actually, you know, we can be informed to the fact that this kid kicks off after 10 minutes of every group, acts like the clown and storms out. We have a bit of an understanding of, uh, of why. So I would say if, uh, if, if people are interested to, to bring that into their programs, it's very brief, takes about 15 minutes. Um, and yeah, I've, I've found it to be quite, quite helpful. It's not a diagnostic tool, but 
just helping inform our treatment planning for the clients. Trauma and crisis, um, I'm glad that it's getting spoken about today because we have a massive focus on, on trauma-informed care and training. We've increased our training capacity on trauma-informed practice uh, as a best practice model. We train in trauma-informed care. Also, the impacts of complex trauma, long-term trauma, particularly the impacts on, on the um, development of a sense of identity. We're working with clients who it was never, ever safe enough to figure out who am I, you know, that requires introspection. If I take my focus away from out there, I might miss the scent of alcohol on someone's breath or the sound of a, a particular car pulling into the driveway. Plus, usually it's coupled with uh, messages being sent from abusers or, or even worse, from uh, neglectful situations um, that I'm second best or third best or just you know, not best at all. Um, so we're, we're effectively working with young people with a really limited sense of identity. So... Um, training all our staff in trauma and, and what we can do about that, we found, um, we found really important. Also training our staff in therapeutic crisis intervention just to work with uh, some of those behaviours that teenagers coming off drugs can throw at you. Um, we've always had a focus on families. We've now started to increase that capacity a little bit. What we're seeing anecdotally is almost family systems that are in, in shock. What we've always seen is that we're working with clients whose families get to a point where it just gets too much and they might need to kick the young person out. But on a young person taking cannabis, this could take three, four, five years. And so the family has time to develop resiliencies around the situation, around the behaviours. With ICE, we're seeing this condensed into a window of months and even sometimes weeks. And so the, the family unit doesn't have the time um, as a, a system itself to develop the necessary resiliencies to actually cope with this and cope with the grief that surrounds, you know, the fact that, you know, I've got a teenager that I'm, I'm contemplating needing to kick out on the street, especially if there's younger siblings um, in the house and, and that sort of thing as well. So um, really working intensively with the families, educating, letting parents know that relapse and lapse is very, very common, especially with ICE, and that you might not get your baby back straight away. Um, it's it's going to take the, a while for the brain to reboot itself. They might be cranky, they might be unmotivated for quite a while, but but persist because because it certainly it will get better um, given the right the right environment. Um, we've also got specialist homelessness services that we've started in the last 12 months, which work with young people at risk of homelessness. Um, and the sectors that we're in is the eastern suburbs and also the inner city. Um, here in Sydney and our clinical staff have received training in brief family focused therapy to try and better support our clients and their families. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for having me. And most importantly, thank you for the work that you do.